0: You know, yesterday afternoon, as I was putting some finishing touches on my sermon, my wife sent me a link to an article that she had found online, and it was how to keep from being boring on Easter as a preacher. <laughs> you know, there's just, just a little bit of pressure we sense, you know, when you, you come in and in the span of about 15 or 20 minutes. You're going to be talking to more people than usual, and you're trying to put into perspective uh, the most singular, unique day in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, so the advice that were in the columns were things like this. One was, you know, try not to be too polished. I'm thinking, I've never been accused of being polished. Sometimes maybe saying some things from the pulpit that I shouldn't say, but I've never been accused of being too polished. So try to be funny. I'm thinking, all right, I can do funny looking. So I've got that one nailed down. said, don't appear too smart. I said, well, that shouldn't be very hard either. But it did say, try to be short. And that's probably the hardest thing. So let me get right at it today. You know... One of the things that's been gnawing around in me, I mean, all across our region today, all across our nation, there's a phenomenon going on. And as the people are gathering to celebrate Easter as families, the quantities of food are mounting up in the kitchen, and yet there's no thought at all about Christ. There's no thought at all about the resurrection and what that really means to our everyday lives. And and I don't know about you, but there just seems something wrong with that. Now, those of you around here long enough know that... that you know, I may have that sense, but, but I don't want to ha- have that sense just because I think they ought to go to church. I mean, my, my heart is, wh- why is this wrong for them? Not just what I want for them, but why is this wrong for them? You know, and why is it wrong just to be comfortable with Easter? You know, love the idea of spring and new life and resurrection and all these kinds of things, and they just get comfortable with Easter. But why is it that, that just being comfortable with Easter isn't right. You know, in fact, I'm under the conviction that if you and I understand the implications of Easter, that Jesus, the Son of God, who was born to a virgin, lived a perfect life, tempted in every way as us, without sin, who died on a cross on Good Friday and was resurrected on Sunday morning. If we really understand what that resurrection means, we can never be comfortable with Easter. We might be terrified by it. We might be intimidated by it or we might celebrate it, but we can never just be comfortable with it as a good idea, a nice idea, a noble principle kind of idea. Now, if that's just my opinion, it doesn't matter very much. But if that's what the Word of God is trying to communicate to us, then it's a whole different ball of wax, isn't it? I mean, I've told you over and over again, you shouldn't really care about my opinion. What you should care about is what the Word of God says. And so I want to take some time this morning looking at a passage of Scripture that I've never preached on before as a part of an Easter sermon. But it really speaks to me about this issue of understanding the implications of what it means that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the grave on Easter morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 24 with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, this text is on page 898. 898. If you're using your own Bible, which I encourage you to do, I encourage you to bring your own Bible with you every Sunday, or if you're scrolling it out on your cell phone that hopefully you've got on vibrate, or whether you're using your iPad or whatever, just get to Luke chapter 24, the third gospel of the New Testament. Now, I want you to remember who Luke is. Luke is a Gentile, in other words, a non-Jew who's come to know Christ. He never met, as far as we know, he never met the earthly Christ. He wasn't in the picture when Jesus was walking with the disciples, when he was crucified, or when he was resurrected. But he came to be a follower of Christ. He was an intelligent man. He was smart enough to be a first-century physician. He had mastered all of that stuff. And as of hearing all these things about Christ, he had said it. God had put a burden in his heart to research the life of Christ and to provide a clear account of who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and what that means for our lives. Now, we get to Luke chapter 24. It's the only chapter in his book that he spends talking about the resurrection. And he and he gives us three pieces. He tells us how they discovered the resurrection. Priscilla read for that for us just a few minutes ago, verses 1 through 12. He spends a long section talking about Jesus' interaction with a couple of his followers who were leaving Jerusalem after the Passover and heading back to their village of Emmaus. And he traveled with them, and it talks about their interaction there. And then they run back to Jerusalem when they finally realize that they're talking to the resurrected Christ. They go up into the upper room with the other disciples. The doors are all locked, as we know from John chapter 20. And then this happens. And as they were saying these things, that's referring to the two disciples who had come back, he himself stood among them. That's a reference to Christ. He just appears. He said to them, peace to you. He says, but they were startled and terrified. And they thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands, my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still could not believe because of their joy and were amazed, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Now, it seems that the whole point of this passage is to prove one point. That Jesus was not raised a spirit. He was raised bodily. Doesn't it? I mean, he, he, he shows up in their midst and he says, Peace be with you. And, and they're, they're startled. And, and they're saying, What? It's a ghost? What, you know? And, they're, and, and, and the whole conversation that Jesus has with them, including <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> including the act of eating the broiled fish, is to prove to them that he is a physical body. It's not a spirit. It's not a ghost. It's not the essence of who he was. was He was physically resurrected from the grave. So you're not seeing a ghost. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. A ghost can't eat. It's me. The same one who walked with you for three years on the roads, teaching you the things of the kingdoms. The same one who was was flogged and and beaten before he was crucified, the one who was nailed to a cross on Good Friday, it's me. It's all of me. That's Luke's point. Now, it's got to be significant, right? Luke's a smart guy. He's given us one chapter on the resurrection. One chapter. He gives us three scenes. That's it. The tomb, the road to Emmaus, the upper room, and then later there's the ascension. It's got to have some meat to it. What's the point? And I think as we understand his points to us today, we understand we just can't get comfortable with the resurrection. It's a nice idea, new life, you know, eternity, those kinds of things, but it's a challenge to us. And if we understand it, it'll either one terrify us, or if we stand in relationship to it, we'll celebrate it. Let me, let me point out some things to you from this text. One of the reasons why Luke is so diligent in teaching and stressing to us that Jesus is, is bodily resurrected is this. Is that you and I have a never-ending need. And that need is that you and I need a Savior. You notice what Jesus emphasizes? He says, you know how you can recognize me? Just take a look at my hand. Take a look at my, my feet, where they drove the nails through. And John, when he's dealing with Thomas, he says, look at my hands and, and put your hand on my side. He is pointing out to them the physical marks that occurred on his body because they needed a Savior. They needed somebody to be sacrificed for the penalty of their sin. And now in his post-resurrection appearance, Jesus is saying, I'm still the same body, and I'm still wearing the marks. He's still our Savior. He's forever our Savior. In fact, it's interesting, if you go over to Revelation, and Jesus is described there in some amazing terms, you know, in Revelation 1 and so, other places, Revelation five and others, you know, the description of him with, you know, with with of his eyes and this, you know, the sword that comes out of his mouth, etc. They're incredible descriptions, and, and I can't begin to tell you all of what that means. But it's amazing to me that in Revelation chapter five, verse six, that even with all of this incredible description, it seems like this metamorphosis, this transformation that's come over Jesus in his glorification, he still looks like one who was slain. That somehow or another, even in his ascended form, with the Father, walking around with God, being a part of the, the throne room of God as the Son of God, even in the state of glorification, he still bears the marks of having been slain for us. One of the reasons why it's so important that you and I understand that Jesus was bodily resurrected, it means that you and I here today need a Savior. And Jesus is forever our Savior. It's not something He just did on a day and that job is over and He no longer does that anymore. He is forever our Savior. And you and I stand forever in need of a Savior. You know, the Scripture describes that all of us are sinners. doesn't mean that we're all equally bad in the world's terms. But when you get down to both sins of commission, the things we actually do, and the sins of omissions, the things that we should do that we don't do, all of us are guilty. That's what the Scripture teaches. I was down... Earlier this, um, this week to Roger Williams University. My youngest son, who's in college, had, a, had an away baseball game there. So I snuck out for the afternoon, and I went down for a doubleheader. They got clocked the first game. Second game, they came from behind in extra innings and won. It, so it made the ride home just a little bit better. Because there's no easy way to get to Roger Williams. You know, you're just going to have to just drive through whatever and get there. Anyway, so it was interesting. Just before the game started. You know, I'm standing behind the, the, the backstop, right behind home plate. And a couple of college students climb up into the bleachers next to me. And, um, and, it, and, it, and within a couple minutes, they pulled out a cigarette to light it up, the two or three of them. And just like that, the AD appeared out of nowhere. He said, this is a smoke-free campus. You know, and, and so, oh, just, you know, I'm sure they knew, but they were starting to put thing, and then they, and I watched them, they wandered away to a gazebo that was about 150 yards away, and then they lit up and smoked where nobody bothered them, and then they came back. But, but this idea that in a smoke-free environment, I just kind of brought back memories of a couple of weeks ago when we had a power team here, and the big guy was talking about the fact that in the, in the presence of God, it's a sin-free zone, and there's no way for any of us who have sin to be able to get into a sin-free zone if we don't have a way to be made sinless. And that happens through a Savior, a Deliverer, one who paid the price and makes us whole. And and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ says that He is and can and will be our Savior and that you and I are perpetually in need of a Savior. I I don't know if any greater contrast of the message of sin and of the hope of an eternal Savior is any clearer than what's going on in Rwanda this weekend. called my pastor friend Theophil Rugabera there yesterday. You know, and he was just, it was late in the day for them about, I don't know, 5.30, 6 o'clock. And he was actually just getting ready to go on the radio to talk in the evening. But they were they were concluding a day of remembering the genocide. Yesterday was the 18th Memorial Day for the genocide. For those of who aren't familiar, back in 1994, in the span of 100 days, Rwandans killed other Rwandans. Literally by hand-to-hand combat, killed o- over 800,000 Rwandans. It wasn't like, you know the, 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 the Holocaust where they got them off neatly to gas chambers and never, nobody really ever saw. These were neighbors who picked up their hose and their rakes and their machetes and literally just slaughtered their neighbors. And you can see the depravity of man at his fullness. The capability. I mean, the, even the guys who participated in it, now they just cannot understand themselves. You can see the power of sin. And here they are remembering that on Saturday. And the very next day, they get to celebrate the possibility of new life in Easter. The bodily resurrection of Christ means that even though our need never ends, God's provision of a Savior never ends. Because Jesus is forever the one who was slain. There's a, there's a second truth. And, and and because we need a Savior, it should never make us feel comfortable. We can celebrate that he's our Savior, or we can be terrified or intimidated that we don't have him as our Savior, but we can't just get comfortable with the idea that there's a better future out there somewhere because of the resurrection. <clears throat> Second truth. And, and this is a little harder to, to, to get at, so just hang with me. You know, if Jesus isn't bodily resurrected, then and he's just raised in spirit. I mean, you, then you can kind of think about it. well, you know, he's really, you know, he, he died. He was a good guy, and, and the spirit of Christ kind of lives on. The noble idea, you know, the, the high moral ethic, you know, those kind of things. And, and Jesus is just a wonderful idea to think about and to try to engage in our lives, and we can get comfortable with that. But if he's bodily resurrected, if he's resurrected in flesh and bones then the discussion is over, and he is the only way to the Father. Now you may say, well, you know, pastor, you know, isn't that kind of an arrogant claim to make for Christianity and whatever? I want to tell you, I'm not the one who figured that out. It was the Greek philosophers that Paul encountered in Athens in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. They knew exactly what the implications were. If Jesus was bodily resurrected from the grave, that meant the discussion about how to know God, how to relate to God, who God is, that all of that discussion was over. Just, just flip over one, one, one book. You know, Luke, skip past John, just get the book of Acts, just go into your right, 17th chapter. Paul's in Athens. He's there by himself, right? It, you know, there's been trouble in the cities he's been in before, and so they, he's kind of taken there by himself, and they tell him, I think they told him, stay out of trouble, just stay indoors you know that kind of thing and and he's he's wandering around the city and he's seeing all these idols and he's seeing the temples to all these foreign gods and he's and he's just troubled in his spirit by all of this and so he finally goes into the synagogue and begins to teach and then when they close down for the day he goes out into the marketplace and he's talking about all these ideas about who jesus is and and the scripture tells us that um that the Greeks had nothing better to do than to sit around and hearing new ideas all the time. Verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to kind of get it all, right? So they invite Paul to come give a speech to them. And they do it on Mars Hill, the place where the, the best ideas were exchanged. Paul shows up. Verse 22, he begins to teach. Men of Athens... I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath in all things. From one man he has made every nation of men, To live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him. That's that whole grappling, you know, how do we find God? There's many pathways to the summit of truth. Everybody's kind of looking. So they're seeking God. Perhaps they may reach out and find him, though he is not far from one of us. So they're tolerating all this stuff, right? God's creator. Can't be hit, can't be shaped into the form of images. You can't be restricted to a temple. I mean, he's rattling their spiritual cages, and they're just taking it. But look what happens when you get down to verse 30. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And then what happens? Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. That word's not actually strong enough. They, see, they had to sneer at him, you know? It's, they understood. I mean, that was it. The discussion was over. Lecture done finished, you know? They got up and they walked out. Why? These guys who had spent their lives thinking about how to know God, they understood that if Jesus is resurrected, the debate's over. The debate's over. I mean, if he's raised in spirit... Let the debate rage. But if Jesus is raised physically from the dead, the debate is over. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That's what it means. So how can you be comfortable with that? You can either celebrate it because you're on the way, or you can be terrified because you don't want to be on the way, but you can't get comfortable with it at all. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is different. It's not like Lazarus. Lazarus was brought back to life. Jesus was resurrected. John, you know, Jesus brought Lazarus back to life in, in John chapter 11. You know, he, he goes to the tomb and he, and, 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 and he says, he calls Lazarus out and he tells him to move the stone. The stone was moved so Lazarus could get out. When the stone is moved at the resurrection of Jesus, it's not so that Jesus can get out. It's that Mary and Martha and Peter and John so they can get in. That's why the tombs moved. It's totally different. Lazarus, once he came waddling out, he was all wrapped up in his mummy clothes, you know. They, he said, well, you know, re- release him. Untie him. Let him go. What happened to the clothes of Jesus? He says that he's just we're laying there with a face cloth set aside. Resurrection and resuscitation are two different things. See, when you're brought back to life, you still have to die. When you're resurrected, you've defeated death. You've conquered death. You've smashed death. You're victorious over death. The, the, the guys in, in Athens, they knew that. They could get it right away. So they would tolerate. All the, we got one creator. He's made all the nations. You can't worship him by the images. All your temples are wrong. They could take all of that. But when it got to the point where they said Jesus is resurrected, they closed the door. Because at that point, it's end of discussion. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And we can celebrate that, or we can be scared by it, but we can never just be comfortable with it. One last reality. Back to Luke 24. One of the goals was to be short, right? So I'm trying to work on being short. Here we go, really quickly. I've got to draw a couple quick contrasts. John chapter 20. Mary's in the garden. She's weeping. Because they've taken away the body of her Lord, and they don't know where he's gone, kind of idea. And, 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 and this figure shows up in the garden, and she thinks it's the gardener, the guy who showed up early to take care of the place. And, and she, she cries out to him, and when he calls her by name Mary, she recognizes that he's Jesus. And she says, Rabboni, Rabbi. And she reaches out and she grabs him, and he says, stop clinging to me. Now you got that. Don't touch me. <laughs> Here you got it in Luke 24. Touch me and see. Touch me and see. Go ahead, touch my hands. Touch my feet. In John, it's touch my side, Thomas. Go ahead. What's the difference? In John, Mary's trying to cling to Jesus like she had him before so that Jesus could be with her. In Luke 24, and so she uses the word rabbi, teacher, stay here and be for me, be mine kind of idea. In Luke 24, Jesus is saying, touch me and see. Enter into a relationship with me so that that it's not me being with you, but it's you being in me. The the marvelous thing about a bodily resurrected Christ, he's still a person and he's still inviting us to touch and to see. He's inviting us to enter into relationship with him. I got to tell you, we can never get to a place where we celebrate Easter if we're not in relationship with Christ. Bruce spoke about the the power of that relationship in his journey as he's moved through several periods of intense hardship in his life and how that relationship turned out to be real and, and sustained him through all of that. Jesus, as physically resurrected, is still offering us relationship today. It's different than the way that you and I relate to one another, the way that Mary wanted to relate to him, but it's still relationship, a relationship that's built on the confession of our sin, our acknowledgement of Christ for who he is, and our commitment of faith to live with him and for him and in him. You know, one of the things in the article said not to oversell it. So I'm not going to try to twist your arm today. But, but I don't think you could ever get to a place where you can really celebrate Easter if you're not in relationship with Christ. And we, we've got some simple ways you can do that. And in, in your chair, backs in front of you, there's a, a simple card. If you think this is the moment where you said, you know what, I've been thinking about these things, and yeah, I've been comfortable with Easter and Christmas and stuff in the past, but boy, you know what, I want to celebrate it. I want to have Christ in my life. You can take that step today. All you've got to do is in your own heart, With eyes open, you don't even have to say audible words because just say to God, I understand I'm a sinner. I've done stuff that that I'm not even proud of, let alone God being able to be proud of. And I confess those to God and I ask Him to forgive me for the Savior who was raised bodily. And then just commit your life to being a follower of Christ. You don't know what all that means yet? We'd love to help you out with it. You can just take that card or you can even use your connection card. There's a place for you to check off there. You just go out. We have a response table set out in the lobby. Be Be an elder out there standing behind the table, probably looks better than normal, wearing a suit today instead of the way they usually look. And, and, and they're, they all have their rabies shots. They're not dangerous guys at all. And their heart would simply just be to help you, you know? Say, Here, here's a Bible. Here's some next steps you can take. Is there, hey, can I call you in a week and see if there's anything I can do to serve you as you move forward? Take the step. Enter into relationship today. What's our response to Easter? Are you comfortable with Easter? Are you terrified by it? Or do you know you can celebrate it? Because the discussion is over. The Savior is still there, and we still can be in relationship with him by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for just your teaching today. Give us a spirit of celebration as we trust in you. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come. They're going to lead us in a closing song of celebration to our risen Lord.